On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. This journey around the Holy Land is taking us to so many different places, north, south, east and west, Mike. And we've come to a point where you want to focus on the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, I think it would be worth just reminding us just briefly what that was and then perhaps what we can see where we are. Well, David, it's that moment when the glory of Jesus breaks through and in very tangible form, we see that this rabbi that they've been following is not just a man, not just a human being. He really is the glory of God that's broken through into this world as we'll see in this story. So something quite unique happens as part of this event. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I mean, we're surrounded by, well, mountains actually, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We're in the very north of Israel. We're, we're almost at the border. Uh, in fact, it was in the old tribal territory of Dan from the Old Testament. There's that expression from Dan to Beersheba, from the uttermost north to the furthest most south, equivalent of saying from John O'Groats to Land's End for those who live in the UK. And here we are up in that territory in the foothills of Mount Hermon and surrounded all around by the lower foothills of that mountain range and many other mountains literally surrounding us on every side here. And Mount Hermon, for many months of the year, covered in snow nowadays? Yeah, absolutely. Remember, Mount Hermon is it's the source, it's, it's meltwaters that are the source of that supply to the springs at Banias and two other places where the Jordan makes its beginning. And it's as those snows melt that those springs and the river is fed. And particularly in spring when the snow is melting, that's when you get those floods that go rushing down the River Jordan, the sort of flood that Joshua had to face when he was crossing the Jordan to come in to the Promised Land. And when you look at this landscape, mountains all around, as you say, I suppose it's a healthy reminder that, you know, this part of the world is not like Norfolk. <laughs> it's anything but, and for listeners outside of England, we'd perhaps better say that Norfolk is beautiful but incredibly flat. This is anything but flat. We literally have valleys and mountains everywhere around us here. And so the transfiguration of Jesus, it happened at the top of a mountain or where? Well, yeah, you see, we're not actually 100% sure where the transfiguration happened. Now, in church history, in the early days of church history, it was thought that it had taken place at a place we've seen previously, Mount Tabor. Now, we saw Mount Tabor when we were standing on Mount Precipice, that cliff at the edge of Nazareth where his townsfolk wanted to throw him off the edge. And, and just to our left, as we were standing there, we saw this Mount Tabor rising up above the Jezreel Valley. And for many years, it was thought that that was where the transfiguration happened. And in the 4th and 5th centuries of the churches and the Byzantine period, uh, many pilgrims used to make pilgrimage to go there to recall that event. But you know what? It, it really is extremely unlikely that that was the location. Why? Because in Jesus' day, Mount Tabor was very heavily populated. It was also a, a garrison area of Roman soldiers. And we read in the text that Jesus wanted to get away to a quiet place. 
But secondly, he's just been in Caesarea Philippi. And he goes on from Caesarea Philippi, and it's a few days' journey from there, and he arrives at the mount where this transfiguration takes place. Now, the most obvious mount for that is Mount Hermon. By that, we don't have to envisage that, you know, he got out his grappling hooks and climbed to the very top of the mountain, but probably somewhere in its lower foothills, somewhere in this Mount Hermon range that we are looking at, that would get him away from people and the crowds that he had been around and where he could encounter his father in this quite unique way. So we're very privileged. Here we are sitting, looking across towards those lower foothills of Mount Hermon and thinking it's somewhere around there that this episode that we're looking at today occurred. Well, remind us of the story in, in the Bible. Where do we find it? Well, let's take Matthew's Gospel um, to read it. You also find it in Mark and Luke, by the way. You even find a reference to it in, in Peter's second letter. But we're going to read the version that is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 1 to 13. And we read this. And it just follows on straight after that incident we've looked at at Caesarea Philippi where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ and then Jesus has to correct his thinking about what the Christ means for them. Well, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James. So not all the disciples, just those three that he was particularly close to. And they went up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, when the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. He's thinking of John the Baptist, that Elijah-like figure. And they didn't recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. The first question is, why would this transfiguration, and I'm sure we'll explain that more in a moment, why would it have to happen, you know, somewhere up a mountain? <laughs> Well, look, I think two reasons. First of all, Jesus wanted this to be a very private event. So he needed to get somewhere where there weren't crowds passing. Jesus wanted to get away from the crowds. What he was about to experience was something 
very special, very particular. And he needed to be alone with just those three very close followers. Now, secondly, why a mountain? Well, in the Old Testament, mountains were often associated with divine encounters, divine revelations. Think of Moses going up Mount Sinai. Think of Elijah on, on Mount Carmel. And it, it, so it's not magic and it's not a case of going up the mountain means that you're closer to God and touch him better. That's a very sort of uh, pagan view. Really, it's going up the mountain because of what it symbolizes. This is about going alone to meet with God in an expectation that something special, some special revelation is going to happen. And going up the mountain symbolized that. So the transfiguration itself, it's an unusual word, you don't use that word very often. Is it, is it some kind of transformation or, or what was going on? Yeah, I think that's probably the nearest word we can get really because transfigured, transfiguration, like you say, it's, it's not a word we use in everyday language. And I think the thing is, the writer is trying to explain the inexplicable. Something glorious happened at that moment. So what happened? Well, let's take us back right to the start of our journey in Nazareth, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said that she was going to give birth to a son. How can it be? I'm pregnant. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you so that he that is born within you will be the son of the most high God. Here was God's son coming into the world. And through the incarnation, the Son of God chose to leave behind his glory and his power and his magnificence in heaven and become a real human being, transformed utterly into a real human being. And yet he was still God. We used the illustration earlier in our series of how like a, a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, exactly the same creature, but transformed, transfigured, we might almost say. And what's happening here is Jesus is going up that mountain to meet with his father. And for a moment, the communion, the relationship, the conversation between him and his father is so intimate that the glory that he had from the beginning of all time breaks out. It's as if it can't be contained any longer. It had been left behind in heaven and it suddenly breaks out. It can't be contained anymore. And so we see his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. Where do we find that sort of imagery? Well, in some of the prophets, when they see visions of heaven, when Daniel sees one like a son of man in Daniel chapter 7, when Isaiah has his vision of the Lord in Isaiah 7, when Ezekiel has his vision of the throne of God in Ezekiel chapter 1, there's always light, brilliance, and it's as if for that moment, the glory of Jesus that was his by right that he'd left in heaven could no longer stay in heaven and broke through into his human body. And for those few moments, minutes, hours, we don't know how long, transfigured him. It was as if, if I can use this analogy, the caterpillar burst forth into a butterfly for a moment before coming back to the caterpillar. Human language there, of course. So as you say, almost indescribable and just such an amazing 
unique event. And so Peter, does he fall into the trap of speaking before he thinks? Well, that's pretty much the norm for Peter, isn't it? Always good-hearted, but never really quite thinking fully about what he's saying. So, Lord, it's really good that we're here. Um, Why don't I put up three shelters? Why three? Because at this moment when Jesus' glory breaks through, Moses and Elijah appears as well. And he thinks, wow, this is an amazing spiritual experience. I want to keep hold of this. Let's build three shelters for you. A bit like they used to build shelters for the Feast of Shelters, the Feast of of Booths, when for seven days Israelites would live in shelters to remember that time when they had been in the wilderness and had lived in simple homes or tents. And and he wants to grab the moment. He, He wants to bottle the moment. And he says, Lord, this is great. What a moment. Let's build three shelters here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? What were they doing there? Well, they, of course, had died long before and had gone to be with God in heaven. But it was about who they represented. Moses representing the law. Elijah, one of the great prophets. Here is God showing that both the law and the prophets of the Old Testament all led up to, all pointed to this one person, Jesus. And in their appearing at this transfiguration, they're saying, yes, this is, this is who we came for. This is who we lived for. This is who we were talking about. And Peter wants to capture it, put it in a bottle and keep it forever. And the Bible verses you read don't give the impression that Elijah and Moses were some sort of holograms. No, not at all. No, we know that just then there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So this is not, you know, this is not a hologram. This is not a hallucination. These are the representatives of the Old Testament talking with Jesus. I wonder what they were talking about. Well, it doesn't tell us, but I I bet they were talking about, hey, it's coming together, isn't it? All that the Father sent us to earth for, all that we did, it's coming together in you, isn't it? I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at that moment. But there's not just this transformation of Jesus, if you like, there's a voice to be heard as well. Yeah, we read, didn't we? A voice from the cloud. Now, clouds in the Old Testament, and you know, to to really understand our New Testament, we've got to go back into the Old Testament and draw our imagery from there. Clouds so often symbolise the presence of God. Think of the cloud that came down on the tabernacle when it was dedicated. Think of the cloud that moved on and guided God's people through the wilderness. Think of the cloud that came down and filled the temple when Solomon dedicated it. Clouds symbolized God's coming down. So while they were still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased, listen to him. So here is God speaking. So this is what? For them, it's probably a moment of revelation that this rabbi they have been following, the one that Peter has just confessed, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Now, that didn't make him divine as such. Even when Peter said, you're the Messiah, the Son of God, Son of God was often used as a title of of the anointed kings in the Old Testament. But here now is God himself making really clear, 
To these disciples, the one whom you acknowledged as Messiah, the one whom you acknowledged as Son of God, this is no mere honorary title. This is indeed my eternal Son who has come into the world and I am so pleased with him. You know, any of us who are parents will think back to times when our kids have done things as they've been growing up and they've achieved something. It might have been that first moment when they walked or when they went to school and didn't cry the first day or succeeded in sport or got their first job and our hearts beam, don't they? We're so proud of them. I love that thought. The Father in heaven was so pleased with his son, so proud of all that he had done, all that he'd given up, all that he'd done on earth so far. And here's not just a revelation for the disciples, but a confirmation for Jesus. Because the path ahead was going to be tough. It was going to be tested whether he truly believed that he'd been sent to be the saviour of the world. So both a revelation and a confirmation as the glory of God comes and God's voice speaks, just as it had spoken, of course, at Jesus' baptism when his ministry began, Here's now revelation and confirmation of who he is to send him on what would prove to be the final leg of his journey here on earth. I was going to say, there aren't many instances, I don't think, where the voice of God, literally, is heard. And these were eyewitnesses, Peter, James and John, hearing this, reporting this. They saw it with their own eyes, they heard it with yeah. their own ears. Yeah, and you know what? That leads us really nicely into... Peter's own recollection of this incident in his second letter that he wrote to Peter chapter 1 and verse 17 to 18 I love this he says for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. You can hear there, can't you? He, he's recalling all that happened. It's engraved in his heart. He would never lose that memory that he went through and he's recording it here saying yep I was an eyewitness on that day of what happened what I saw what I heard and I'm testifying to you the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ is no mere man no mere prophet no mere guru no human savior but no one less than God's own son come into this world and we saw it breaking through that day how important is it for people today to be able to say, I know, I know? Well, it's tremendously important. And you know what? For some of us, that comes as a journey. It comes with faltering steps as we start to follow Jesus. But for every single one of us, whether it happens in a blinding light like happened for St. Paul on the road to Damascus, or whether it happens with growing awareness, as it did for these disciples, to come to the point where we can say, I know, I know that I know that I know who Jesus is. One, not just because I've read about him, but two, because I've met him. Through his Holy Spirit, I have actually met the risen Jesus. He has 
encountered me. He has changed my life. I'm on a journey, an adventure with him. I can talk to him each day. I know that my Saviour lives and walks with me day by day. And, you know, that is not arrogance. It's confidence because it's a confidence not based in us and in our own, simply our own experience, but in the revelation of Scripture that undergirds that experience, that lets us know that what we're experiencing isn't made up, isn't a fallacy. No, this is based on historical evidence and authenticated by thousands, millions of Christians through the ages who have met this Jesus too. We really, really can know that our Saviour lives. So what happened somewhere around here, somewhere up a mountain in this area, was not just confirmation from those three disciples, but amazing confirmation for Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and he's already started talking to them, hasn't he, about the cross that's looming on the horizon. We saw back at Caesarea Philippi that it was only when Peter had recognized, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. We read those words from that time on, Jesus began to teach them that he'd have to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders, be crucified, be put to death, buried, and on the third day raised again. And here, in a sense, is going to be a turning point. Because from here on, while he will go back down to Galilee and minister among those towns and villages around the coast, the journey now is inexorably towards Jerusalem, towards the capital, towards where the temple stands and the bastion of religion stood in those days. And he knows what awaits him there. He knew what awaited him there ever since he came into this world. This wasn't a, a plan that went wrong or a plan that the Father made at the last minute. This was a plan known from the foundation of the world, the New Testament tells us. And I think Jesus, as a man, needed encouragement, just like any human being needs encouragement today, particularly when we know there's a tough path ahead of us. So this is not just you know, revelation and confirmation for the disciples it is a confirmation for Jesus. Just as he needed that confirmation as he started out his ministry. Yes, son, it is indeed you and me. It's time to begin. And that was challenged as he went into the wilderness and the devil confronted him and tested and tempted him as he will go from this place, from these hills all around us. It will be challenged. And eventually people will not only try to challenge it, but to snuff it out. Immediately after what must have been an amazing event to witness, they come down the mountain, we're surrounded by the mountains, as you say here, down through the shrub or the trees or this, what is now called arid landscape. You know, what, what, what next? What immediately happened? <laughs> Do you know what? It's back to life as normal. It's funny, isn't it? I think probably all of us have had times when we've had well, what we might call mountaintop experiences, when, you know, we've met with God and met with Jesus in some special way. It might be on our own. It might have been in a meeting or a convention or some crusade or other. And, oh, it was so wonderful and we want to guard and keep that. And then we have to go out. We have to go back to work the next day. And you know what? That's exactly what happens here because it's interesting in both uh, Matthew and Mark's account, which I just happened to be opening here in front of me, 
as they come down from the mountain, we find that in Matthew's account, they're straight into a crowd and a man approaching Jesus and saying, Lord, my son who has these fits needs healing. As we come down in Mark's account, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, ran to greet him. And, and he, it's like, oh, here we go, <laughs> back into life. I'm sure listeners can appreciate this. You know, you've had such a wonderful meeting at church. You've touched heaven. You've had such wonderful, sweet fellowship with your brothers and sisters, whether it's in your small group or a Sunday meeting or a convention. <sighs> and then you go back to work the next morning, back to normal. Well, that's exactly what happened here. And of course, that's exactly the point. These mountaintop experiences are not designed so we can stay up the mountaintop. They're designed so we can come back down from the mountaintop, equipped and recharged, our batteries refilled, as it were, spiritually speaking, and engage with life as it is back down the mountain again with all its knocks and bumps and bruises that come with it. So you're not poo-pooing experiences, experiences with God and Jesus? Absolutely not. I can look back on my own life and think of so many special moments I've had. You know, let's face it, a, a lot of our time of walking with Jesus is pretty ordinary. We get on with life, we, we read our Bibles, we pray, and my style is to chat to Jesus as we go along. I sort of do a, well, Jesus, you know, what are we going to do here? Or Jesus, we've got a big day ahead of us here. But to have those moments and moments that I've had where you have encountered the Holy Spirit of you, have encountered Jesus in a particularly powerful way. He's challenged you, he's spoken to you, he's encouraged you, he's lifted you up into the heavenly places, as it were. I'm not poo-pooing those at all. I so appreciate them. I don't know if I could have continued on my Christian life at times if there weren't some of those markers along the way. But what I'm wanting to underline is we can't live life there. Jesus and those three disciples didn't stay up Mount Hermon. They came back down and very often today, now I found this as a pastor, people want to sort of keep the moment of those religious experiences. You know, maybe we had a visiting speaker at church or we went to some convention or conference or other and God was moving powerfully. And the next thing you know is you've got people coming to you saying, oh, you know, what we really need to do is to have those songs or if only we prayed like so-and-so prayed on the platform. What we need are more prayer times like this at the end of our meeting, trying to replicate what we've just had. And I've always said to them, listen, God's got a plan for all of us individually and our churches. We don't have to copy anybody. What we do have to do is listen to what Jesus is telling us and to do it. So it's really important we don't try to, I spoke about it earlier, put it in a bottle and keep it and bring it down and, and take the top of the bottle out every so often in order to try to keep replicating that. What's important is through the that, through that experience, we encounter God, we're refreshed by God and energised to go on in the journey that lies ahead of us, not to keep trying to artificially replicate that moment of glory that we had. If this transfiguration of Jesus hadn't happened, what would we have missed? What would we have missed? Well, I think we would have missed this moment of confirmation of who he is. 
that he really is no one less than the second person of the Trinity come into this world, we would have missed this confirmation that Jesus came not to bring a fresh religion, but to bring to a climax the old religion, the faith of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, faith of the Old Testament, brought to a climax and fulfilled in him and through him, and yet broadened out in a dynamic new way. We would have missed that it is possible for ordinary disciples to have moments of special encounter with Jesus. So I won't be quick in tearing this page out of my Bible. It's a very precious page, but it's a precious page with a precious story designed to push us back, energized into ordinary life with an ever deeper conviction of who Jesus is, how he is with us and what he wants to do through us. Well, with that thought in mind, please pray for us. Lord Jesus, surrounded by these hills where your glory was revealed, we remember today that we need to climb no mountain to meet with you because you came down from that mountain to meet with us. And wherever hearts are opened, you will come in to transform and energize and lead us out to make a difference. Help us, Lord, not to be so captivated by those special religious moments we might have had that we seek to bottle it and reproduce it and so end up missing the next new thing. We bless you that the transfiguration reminds us that you are no mere man, but are no one less than the Son of God come into this world. And we're so glad that that's the one we take with us as we go. So we bless you for that together in your name. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.